Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Mehdi Anwar, who is a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Connecticut. As a Jefferson Science Fellow, he served as Special Advisor for Technology Transfer and Innovation in the Office of Intellectual Property and Environment, Economic Bureau, U.S. Department of State. At present, Dr. Anwar is assisting U.S. Department of State and other U.S. government organizations and the United Nations Office for the Least Developed Countries, Landlocked Developing Countries, and Small Island Developing Countries to stand up the newly established United Nations Technology Bank. Welcome, Mehdi. Thank you. Thank you, Gil, for the very generous introduction. <laughs> so, you know, one area of re- your research interest is the Memrister, yeah. uh, which I know has... Uh, gathered a lot of interest uh, lately, uh, especially uh, because of its possible applications in neuromorphic computing uh, as we get uh, closer and closer to the failure of Moore's law in conventional computing and uh, the quantum computers are not here yet uh, in, a, in a practical fashion. Um, so I would love to um, have a, a deep dive uh, on the Memristor area. What exactly is the Memristor? So, Memristor uh, was actually something that was predicted by Professor Chua at UC Berkeley yeah. uh, in, the, in the 70s. And then a group at, uh, led by Stan Williams, they actually reported the first Memristor yeah. uh, using titanium dioxide. So as the name suggests, it is a memory resistor. It's a simple two-terminal device that remembers. And later, uh, if you talk to Dr. Chua, the Memristor shows actually a his hyster- uh, show a hysteresis in the IV characteristic. Yeah. And uh, as far as Dr. Chua is concerned, anything that has a pinched up IV characteristic happens to be a Memristor. So that's an overgeneralization. But maybe he's right. Right, right. So this is uh, 
So the basic components in, a, in, in an electric circuit, I guess, is resistor, capacitor, and inductor. That's right. And uh, this is uh, sort of the fourth fundamental component there, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because the first three, if you look at it, uh, like a resistor simply relates voltage and current. And uh, what you call an inductor will actually do the same thing because it is voltage and, and flux. And a capacitor is charge and voltage. So right. a fourth one, which actually connects a flux and charge was actually missing. And from that symmetry argument, Lian Chua was able to predict the existence of a fourth circuit element, which is the member step. Um, so over here at, at UConn, uh, we actually, if you look at member steps, there were actually two, two groups as an example. Uh, one particular group actually simply makes an assumption that there is something called a membrister. And what can we, what can we do using it? So right. they're actually, I mean, if I, if, I, if I quantify them, they are actually roughly more than 95% of the research that is getting reported, saying that if there were something called a membrister, these are the things we can do with it. I see. And then there's a very small fraction uh, of research groups where they are actually working on fabricating individual or crossbar structures and actually trying to find out exactly how to implement all of those ideas that 95% is actually uh, what you call reporting. <laughs> okay. So I know that Hewlett Packard came out in 2008 uh, with the much fanfare and announced that they have a practical version of the membrister. Is yes. That true? Okay. Yes. And at the same time, if I if I am not mistaken, so I could be wrong, but if I if I remember right, uh, the idea was uh, that that uh, uh, membrister uh, based uh, flash memory yeah. will be actually uh, what you call capturing uh, uh, what you call the memory market. But if we look at uh, what you call the market, uh, that thing is that is ex that's not the case yet. Right. And, and what we have found out during our experimentation uh, is uh, that, uh, I mean, it's not that our devices are the best, uh, but still, after a few runs, let's, let's say in our case, it could be in the, in the range of 50 to 100, mm -hmm. the membrister locks itself in a permanently on state. Mm -hmm. So that could be reversed. So using the HP technology, it's not that it's going to lock about 100 users. Maybe it's going to lock about after 10,000 users and so on and so forth, but there is that particular trend or tendency yeah. for the member starts to lock itself. I see, I see. So the, so more generally, the, the memristor is something that has a state-based resistance, right? So yes. it, can, it can flip back and forth and if the if the voltage is is within a constrained range, it can hold that state. Is that right? Uh, yes. So, uh, uh, as an example, if you simply think of uh, hysteresis, that if I start fresh, so as an example, to to get the whole thing started, we have to apply a slightly larger voltage, which is the electroforming. Yes. And. Again, we can come back to this one later because there are some of the 
applications may require that we come up with uh, membristors without any electroforming, mm. because that's actually uh, will serve a different purpose. Right. But let's say once we've activated the membristor and we start from zero voltage and we drive it positive, then it actually follows a rather high resistance path. Mm -hmm. Then after a certain threshold voltage, it actually simply switches from the high resistance to a lower resistance state. Yeah. And then as we decrease the voltage, it still maintains a low resistance. And at a negative voltage, it again flips and the IV characteristic keeps on repeating itself. Right. But the consecutive IV traces are actually different. And this is where we believe that the physical conduction mechanism actually comes into play. And that actually eventually leads to a minister getting locked in a permanently on state. I see. So, so the chemistry um, of a memristor, I know that you are experimenting with different materials. Is titanium oxide still considered to be the, the material to, to attempt? Um, the thing is, uh, again, um, titanium oxide was the first one that yeah. was reported. And I believe uh, HP after that used tantalum oxide. Hmm. Uh, but if we were to pick, then the best material system is going to be either hafnium oxide or zirconia based oxides. Hmm. Because they will allow you to, they will provide you the fastest switching times. I see. I see. And hafnia is something of interest to technologists because it is actually compatible with the existing CMOS process as well. Mm. Because hafnia is the high-k dielectric that people actually use is as, as the gate material, as the gate, uh, as, as the gate dielectric. Okay. So there's also chemistry here is um, really the oxygen uh, getting depleted and getting refurbished. What, what exactly happens? Uh, I mean, the thing is, uh, yeah. unlike, unlike simple electrical devices where we simply have uh, what you call electrical conduction uh, that is uh, uh, which is uh, or one particular component of the transport equation which is uh, uh, current density equals um, uh, sigma times electric field yeah or um, more it could be current equals q and v which is electronic charge carrier concentration multiplied by the velocity uh, but in a membrister, it is not only electrical, it is also chemical and also chemical in nature because the initial aspect happens to be a chemistry. Mm. Okay, so that is something in electrical we were not used to dealing with, but mm. now we have to. Right, right. Um, so the chemistry actually, the chemistry part actually also adds up uh, uh, to the delay uh, seen in this particular devices because once they apply an electrical voltage, mm. it is not that response is going to be instantaneous because the chemistry has to kick in first. Mm. Once the chemistry has kicked in, and as we will say, that once we apply a voltage, then a physical process that actually allows to allows the formation of a filament that will connect the two electrodes. Once that is complete, then and only then actually we see a switching from the high to a lower resistance state. I see. And that actually takes time. Um, uh, so, so once we apply a voltage, there is going to be a delay 
And after the delay, there's going to be a switching. Uh, and that actually can be controlled uh, as an example if we scale the device. Hmm. So the, the, the read-write operations, um, I guess, so, so, so one of the challenges here is to get that read-write delayed to, to lower and lower uh, timing. Is that, is that one of the... Uh, 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 yes, that is going to be a challenge. Yeah. And, uh, and here, actually, material selection becomes rather important. Uh, because uh, depending on the material, uh, the thing is, as we as I as I've said that uh, as an example, uh, uh, hafnia or zirconia actually has a better uh, what you call um, uh, a switching per, uh, switching performance as compared to titanium oxide or tantalum or zinc oxide, which we have been using. Okay. And and the switching uh, of the state has hysteresis in it, so. So I guess uh, there is a there is a lifetime uh, of a memristor, and and if I understand this correctly, maybe I think uh, you said it at, at some point it's going to get locked up, that it's not going to be able to perform anymore. Uh, yes. So what happens is uh, that, as an example, when we apply a positive voltage, we have to, and our intention is to go from high resistance to a lower resistance state. Yeah. Then. Initially, the chemistry starts. Iron, iron will actually stack, start to stack on the top of each other. Mm-hmm. And that actually is the filament that is going to be established and that will eventually connect the two electrodes. Yeah. Now, when we apply a negative voltage, then we actually are destroying that particular filament. But what happens is instead of filament being totally, what you call, destroyed and restarting from zero, there are remnants that is left behind. Mm. So when the next positive cycle starts, the filament formation starts from the other end of the remnant filaments. So each and every cycle, the filament has to, I mean, in order for us to complete the filament, we simply have to add only a few more ions to actually connect that particular electrode bridge. Mm-hmm. So eventually, after a certain number of iterations, the filament doesn't get destroyed at all. It simply remains connected. And this is what we call that actually it actually gets uh, what you call locked in the uh, what you call low resistance state. I see. Okay. 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 So, and I think this is where I think important aspect is this is where computer science actually comes in that in order for me to read and write, what should be an intermediate process maybe is going to be a refresh so that we actually ensure that uh, the electro- length of the, le- uh, of the filament is, tot- is zero mm. at the start of each and every positive cycle. I see, yeah. So that is why, you know, I mean, there is excitement um, regarding the neuromorphic computing from different perspectives, uh, but uh, the behavior here uh, appears to mirror uh, some some aspects of the brain too, right? Uh, so, if you go go to the neuron levels, uh, I, I I think we have something like eighty billion neurons and maybe ten to the power of fifteen synapses in the brain. Uh, if we are able to model the neurons and the synapses using memristors, um, and these are these can uh, I'm just speculating here, maybe. So, 
these can not only uh, not only store data but also could uh, could behave like a like a computing um, unit as well, right? So it's our ability to model the brain uh, in a better position with this type of technology. Um, see, the thing is, uh, when it comes to neuromorphic computing, and as you pointed out at the start of this podcast, there are uh, different aspects using using quantum computing. Uh, so p- different, uh, what I call, um, research groups are actually pushing their own uh, own ideas. Yeah. But when it comes to member stem, uh, so first of all, um, how, how does the brain compute? Uh, I mean, that I don't think is clear to us yet. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to Memristor, you're absolutely right. That is, it can store and it can actually perform a logic operation at the same time. So this is what people actually have been using called implication logic. Mm-hmm. Things say A implies B. Uh, but the problem is that during this particular operation, one of the piece of information is actually lost. So mm-hmm. that may require that we actually save it. So it actually, what I'm saying is, it actually simply, I mean, is is making it rather complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other challenges, this material implication logic, which have been also demonstrated by the same group at uh, led by Stan Williams, yeah, yeah, uh, in one of their uh, Nature papers. Uh, the, the, the push has always been that we have to somehow replicate the Boolean functions that and, or, not, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So my understanding is that whenever it comes to Membrista, that maybe trying to implement Boolean functions may not be the right idea. We have to look for something else, mm-hmm. something totally different. So first of all, the challenge is we do not yet know how our brain computes. Mm. That is, each and every synapse. Are the synapses different categories saying one is going to perform logic function, the other one is going to perform, as an example, uh, is going to store memory? Or is the processing done in the memory while the memory is actually retained somewhere else? Right. Right. So that is actually not so clear. Uh, and the other thing, other aspect that we talk about is like like individual members versus crossbar structures. Right. So whenever we are addressing a certain members, there are multiple paths that will lead to the particular members. So there are sneak paths. Mm-hmm. And question is, and therefore people actually have used what you call uh, a different, what you call a membrister that actually has uh, a transistor in it, or as an example, diode, just to ensure that I'm going to address only one particular membrister, not the others. Right. But my personal feeling is that is actually making it too complicated. And I don't think there are diodes or unidirectional, or maybe there are, I don't know, <laughs> uh, what you call uh, unidirectional, uh, what, you call, um, uh, what you call pathways in our brain. Right, right. Yeah, so this is really fascinating, Meghdi. So the crossbar structures and I think, you know, the general technology trend here appears to be, at least from the surface, 
that, you know, we had deep neural networks. So we have been trying to sort of model the brain using uh, software. Uh, now we have some interesting new technologies and the approach appears to be um, kind of take what we have learned from deep neural networks and make it more efficient. Uh, but what you are suggesting is uh, there is still some fundamental questions, um, you know, uh, how the brain actually behaves, how it stores information, how it computes. And till we have more transparency into it, we may have a technology that would fit into it, but we don't really know the processes well to actually model it, it sounds to me. Uh, you're, you're right. I mean, what you're trying to do is actually based upon the way we have done things, especially computing and electronics. Electronics is actually something that is predetermined that if I apply a certain voltage, I get a certain current no matter what. Yeah. So it is totally predictable. And the way we are using Memristor is actually a simple replacement of a transistor or something similar to that. Mm. And we expect that it's going to behave exactly the way we have seen electronics to behave. So my understanding is that that may not be the right usage or utilization of Membristol because it's a totally different ball game. Yeah. So maybe as, a, as an example, uh, in our brain, the most important aspect is like if you, I multiply two big numbers as an example, right. I may not get the exact answer, but I, I can get something that is reasonably close. Mm-hmm. So my understanding is in a Memristor-based technology, I do not want the exact answer. I want something that is close. Right. Uh, so if I would like to do something like that, then maybe uh, taking starting from the existing electronics or transistor-based logic function may not be the right starting point at all. Mm. Mm. So we have to look at memristors and we have to come up with an application platform that actually suitable to memristors because otherwise it is actually what you say is uh, trying to fit a square peg in a, in a, in a, in a, in a round circular structure or something like that. So we are actually trying to force something. Right. Uh, that may not be the right way of actually utilizing the power of memristors. Yeah, so, so, so you know, um, going back to the brain then, uh, it seems like, you know, from a software perspective, like you say, what the brain does is, is, is very different from what we actually see from, you know, status quo computing uh, architecture. Yes, yes. Right? So yes. it does classifications, but it does classifications uh, along with anomaly detection. And it doesn't require very large amounts of data to be trained in a supervised fashion. So, you know, all of that uh, implies that, um, you know, the way that we are looking at computing today and learning in computing is very mechanistic and possibly not the way the brain is brain is doing things there was some uh, maybe i don't know if this is true there was some hypothesis i think it seemed to have died down a little bit that the brain actually works like a quantum computer 
Um, but then the physicists have said that it's so wet, you know, you can't really, really hold the, the qubits in, in place to, for it to do that. Uh, what is the latest thinking uh, of, you know, the, the brain's architecture? Do we have any additional information? Um, I, I don't, I, I have not seen any, to tell you the truth. Yeah. And, uh, and again, uh, I mean, the thing is, though, I mean, things are changing. Like, in the, in the past, we have silos of electrical engineers, mechanical, or what you call uh, psychologists, and so on and so forth. But in order for us to understand uh, a brain and its computing ability and how it computes, uh, it is not only uh, what you call, uh, doesn't reside only in electrical engineering. It is actually a multidisciplinary approach right. that we all have to work together in order to understand exactly how it works and how, we can, how can we implement it in a real hardware to actually try to replicate only a small part of it. Right, right. So the other thing that you mentioned, like uh, training a membrista, like a human brain is actually trained from the day of his birth. Right, yeah. Okay, so it is getting trained. It is collecting data. And uh, the question is going to be, so as, as an example, uh, what I would like to do is, uh, like one aspect of the brain is, tremendous amount of redundancy. Mm -hmm. So as an example, if I would like to uh, implement a certain, uh, what you call, application using Membristem, and instead of using, instead of pinpointly selecting a particular Membristem to get it done, I would not do it at all, but I will actually have a built-in redundancy of this in the system. And my understanding is that if I have uh, what you call a redundancy beyond a certain threshold, all of this sneak path, what you call effects, will actually be insignificant in a system. Right. right. That is, in, instead of having a, a 20 by 20 crossbar, if I try to implement it using a 200 by 200 crossbar, then the implication or then the impact of the other sneak paths will not even show up. Right. Uh, uh, that's something I believe and that actually makes it simpler to what you call implement a crossbar structure without the complicated electronics. That actually makes it even more complicated. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. So, you know, um, I don't know too much about it, but when we think about redundancy of the brain, it might be that the brain is running multiple experiments on the same problem and then picking the one that is dominant, you know. Uh, uh, that's, a, that's a possibility. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when they do uh, dreams, uh, analysis of dreams, uh, one suggestion is that, you know, brain is practicing and there are different scenarios being run uh, simultaneously uh, so that it can pick the, the dominant, uh, dominant choice. And because of the, the, the sheer size of it, um, in terms of neurons and synapses, there is there is a lot of redundant capacity there. So when when presented with a problem, it can create its own hypotheses and test it all simultaneously and and come up with a with a reasonable answer, even if it hasn't been trained on similar labeled data, large amounts of similar labeled data in the past, right? 
Yes, yes. Uh, I, I mean, you know, that is always, always a likelihood uh, uh, because uh, it, it, it has the it has the capacity, as as you mentioned, to run multiple experiments at the same time. Uh, but one thing, my understanding is, um, and again, it it comes down back down to how does the brain compute? Yeah. Uh, uh, is it pattern matching, or uh, uh, because again, if you are walking, as an example, and you see a certain face, right then all of a sudden it reminds you of someone else and you think, oh my God, that could be my friend and I last saw him 30 years back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the brain automatically tries to age that image and it looks at certain features that are unique. Mm. Okay, so, and my understanding, and that has happened to me because I saw a friend all of a sudden after 30 years and I said, is that you? And to tell you the truth, the face was different, but there was something that actually was a match which I don't know exactly what. <laughs> right, right. Okay, and there's also a possibility you will actually say that and you'll be proven wrong. Okay, so the brain actually has a certain thing that it actually looks at certain things in a certain way. Yeah. And that actually points to the way it actually processes data. Mm. It may not be that it is actually doing the ones and zeros and rounding them off. That's totally different. Right, uh, right. So is it thinking, it is thinking more analog Fact, yes, right? yeah. that's what I that's what I think, and it is actually matching images, and trying to find out exactly if there are some unique features that actually relates the two images, and if it does, then it actually flags it. Right, and, and what you mentioned in terms of so you you see somebody you haven't seen for thirty years, but it's still able to create a proxy. Uh, for Definitely. the data that it has stored in an you know an agent for thirty years and still come up with you know it's anomaly de- detection rather than classification right. right and that's right. and exactly. extremely exactly. powerful yeah exactly uh, and you know the thing is uh, this is something we actually have discussed in the past like um, I mean the application of memristors yeah uh, like in our brain sometimes we actually our synapses see this to function or they get stuck. Mm. So if you remember, uh, people actually remember what they did when they were young, but they forget recent events. That is the memristors are no longer functioning and they're actually getting shorted or connected to actually one of the previous pieces of information Mm. or the previous cycles. That means you can't, they can't refresh it anymore. That's what's happening. So in that particular sense, a memristor and a synapse, a memristor, a, a, a synapse that is aging or getting impacted or affected by Alzheimer and a memristor that is actually getting shorted actually behaves in a similar fashion. Mm. But that doesn't imply that trying to refresh the memristor and trying to refresh the synapse is actually the same thing. But right. <laughs> what I'm saying, there's a certain degree of parallelism in between the two. Right. Uh, will one lead to the other? That is actually a very, uh, we are stretching it a little bit, but that may not be the case. But uh, it is it is funny to see when we actually see this particular aspect yeah. uh, in, in the two. And so the, the shortening of the memristor, uh, is that a function of use or something else? No, it is actually, it's a, it's a memory resistor. Yeah. So it simply remembers because... Uh, uh, the chart is actually uh, uh, is getting accumulated, so it remembers exactly what happened in the past. Mm. Uh, I see. And it's a true terminal device like a resistance. 
Yeah, so no, I was uh, trying to draw an analogy back to the to the brain. So aging uh, seems to reduce our capacity to learn, clearly uh, reduce our capacity to learn new things. Yes. Um, it, uh, in, the, in the absence of disease like Alzheimer's, we still seem to be able to retain information from long, long time ago. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, and so... So, 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 how do you define? Def, so, aging uh, tells us that our capacity for compute, compute computing, is declining. Is that the way that yes. you would you would think? Uh, as the thing is, uh, like as an example, again, again, as you mentioned, it is a read and write. Yeah. Uh, so, if as a memorister, after a certain number of what you call cycling, uh, if it gets locked in a permanently on state, mm. it has actually has ceased to learn. Right. Uh, so, and doesn't matter what we do to it, it's not going to remember because it doesn't, uh, 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 because the filament is actually uh, always is connected in between the two electrodes. Yeah. So it's going to remain something in the past, not the present. <laughs> right. Uh, right. So in a similar fashion, uh, a neuron, uh, when it can't, uh, what you call, uh, process anymore, it actually gets locked up in, into a state that is the past. Right. Um, and it loses um, the elasticity, so to speak. Right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, but again, it's a stretch because uh, 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 just to make this comparison, but uh, it, it, it reminds when you're looking at it, uh, there is a, a great deal of parallelism in between the two. Yeah, and 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 memory at that point uh, it relies less on elasticity because it doesn't have to learn anymore. It, it just has to essentially read it. And yes. and that's okay, even in a locked in a in a locked stage, I would imagine, right? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And at the same time, you know, this is where the fun part is, that if I have Alzheimer and I remember things in the past, so I said, I I I, I, I forget, and I say, I, I it seems that I'm in the past, <laughs> or in other words, I'm actually not using my logic anymore. Yeah. So. The understanding is that whenever I'm getting stuck in one of the old memory states, synapse is not functioning. Does it imply that the logic operation is also not functioning at the same time? Mm. So there is that something. So what I'm trying to say is, I mean, we need to somehow extract that particular information. Uh, that is, how does the brain compute? And it does, it's not that a memristor is actually going to be a replacement for that particular kind of computation. It can be something totally different. Right. Uh, but uh, it, it, it is something similar to what we are looking at right now. Yeah, I wonder if the power consumption gives us any clues. I mean, the brain appears to be so efficient yeah. uh, from a power consumption perspective. Yes. I don't know if, if, if that gives us any clues at all. Uh, I, I mean, you know, that is something... Also, one of the uh, part of the equation, uh, because whenever it comes to electronics, it, it is actually a brute force that we apply. Yeah. Like if you remember in the very old days, uh, what you call the supercomputers were based on what we used to call uh, emitter coupled logic. Mm -hmm. And the only challenge was to simply try to cool them down because they were running so hot. Yeah. So on the other hand, yes, the brain consumes the maximum amount of energy. 
but still it's a very efficient system because it does not dissipate that much power right so it is a very what call uh, it's a uh, it's a what would you call um, uh, what do you call um, it's a is a heavily parallel system yeah and it runs very slow runs very slow and that's the way to get computing done a great deal of redundancy with uh, with superbly parallel computation but let it cycle or let it be clocked at a very low clock rate mm. and and is it is the the fact that data and computing uh, is uh, are co-located yes. uh, so you don't have to shuttle data back and forth right so that, that that's, also, right. that's right yeah and you know i mean that actually has what you call implication yeah because uh, and that actually leads to one of the questions that people have been uh, discussing which is the non von neumann uh, what you call computational platform mm-hmm. where we do not have to in order for us to compute everything in a cpu we don't have to what to call a fetch data and then put it back again right uh because a it is actually slows the process down and b during this particular process of what to call uh transferring data back and forth someone who's going to be sniffing around will actually know if your that person is smart enough that this is the computation we actually are working on and that actually is a security threat as well right right so so in memory computing actually will make things faster mm-hmm. at the same time it is much more secure than the computational base that we have right now right yeah yeah that is a that's an exciting direction so your current research maybe you know so there there should be um there should be some material sciences based innovation here right uh, so read write timing um having a larger number of cycles uh before it, it you know it becomes locked in all those appears to be ultimately a material sciences problem uh yes uh, the thing is now what's happening is if you look in the past electrical engineering yeah uh always was uh, what you call a uh, dependent a lot on material science right like electronics we started from silicon then we went to gallium arsenide then we went to gallium nitride and all of these things depending upon application material science always had something ready for us that we actually can use uh but now what's happening is it it is so all of these devices initially if i'm talking about modeling yeah yeah uh i i can Im- simply do electrical engineering and i'll be all set the only thing i need is mobility and conductivity and that takes care of it mm-hmm. but when we actually went to let's say as an example gallium nitride which is a material system for high power electronics we found out that it electrical is not enough we also need to take into account mechanical engineering because stress is also a factor because these are all piezoelectric material right so it was before it was electrical and material science now it became electrical mechanical and material science now comes memristor where part of the process is actually chemistry driven yeah so now we have widened it again is electrical mechanical material science and chemistry or chemical engineering mm-hmm. now you're talking about application and and by the way computer science was always there because whenever you talk about using this electronic devices in certain what you call application platforms such as computing yeah 
Now you're talking about, it is not only electrical, mechanical, material science, chemical and computer science. It is also physiology and neurobiology that actually comes into the play. Right, right. Especially thinking about the brain. Exactly, exactly. So it actually becomes, and the worst part is that uh, it actually have a common lingo so that we actually can discuss the same item and try and make and, and, and understand exactly what we are discussing. So far, we understand the lingo of computer science and material science and mechanical engineering, but physiology and neurobiology, that particular language, we are not that accustomed yet. Right, yeah. It's, it's exciting times, uh, like you say. I think innovation is going to be at the intersection of many, many fields coming yeah. together, right? Yes, um, exactly, exactly. And, and, and if we are successful there, it's really truly a step function change in terms of our understanding and capabilities. Uh, yes. so, so I want to close with, you know, your thoughts on neuromorphic computing. So uh, I know that we are running, uh, running against some fundamental physics-related constraints on conventional chip. Um, there have been some advancement in quantum computing, but it seems to be still um, difficult to accomplish. Uh, and so, so what do you see next five years um, from your perspective, Membrister or other such uh, component-based uh, modeling of the brain? Um, where, where do you think we will be in five years from now? I mean, again, I'm slightly partial towards membristers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, um, and the only reason I think membrister is, is a, has an advantage because it's a very simple device. Yeah. Uh, as compared to the other, what you call, uh, what you call application platforms, such as the quantum computing and so on and so forth. Yeah. So it's a very simple two-terminal device that can be scaled. And the material is actually, research is actually very mature so that we actually can use it to implement, implement things. Right. But the only challenge is, as an example, we are still talking about fan out as an example. Hmm. In a membrane, my input is a voltage, but my output is resistor or current. Yeah. Resistance or current. So fan out doesn't compute that well in a membrane system. Hmm. So... What, what I'm saying is that we are still using the parameters that define traditional electronics in order to quantify membrane behavior. Right. And I, think, I don't think that is the right approach. Hmm. Yeah, so, so, so that, that, that opens up a really exciting area, right? So we could potentially throw out, if you will, uh, sort of the conventional ideas around computing and, and take emerging technologies like memristors uh, to really go uh, go to areas that computing hasn't really really attempted to do so far. Exactly, exactly. And as you said, maybe analog computing is the right way of doing it, or something different. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, it's an area that is that is progressing. Um, really appreciate uh, you spending time with me, uh, maybe. And uh, no, Gail, it was thank you for giving me the opportunity. It was really fun. Thanks so much.